Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Please be seated. It's good to see you all here with us today. If uh, this morning you had gotten a, a card uh, for attendance, if you would pass those toward the aisles, I have some gentlemen who will be coming by to pick those up. Uh, I surely would appreciate it. We surely would appreciate a record of your attendance. And for, for those who are visiting with us from Olive Branch, I know where you are. About 15 years ago, as I was going through the Memphis School of Preaching, I had the pleasure to work with the Church of Christ in Nesbitt. So uh, you are not far down the road from that, and I appreciate where you are. And I'm grateful that you came, uh, all of you came, to be with us even today. As you are thinking about the idea of the sermon that you are looking at, if you are looking at the outline in your bulletin, The day after the anniversary of the date that will live in infamy, which was yesterday, that would have been the second greatest attack on U.S. soil. I'd like to show you a picture that I'm not sure if for the rest of you, uh, but as I see that particular picture, uh, the, uh, my body physically changes. Uh, there is a an idea of protection that I cannot offer these people. And it makes my heart begin to race a little more. And I know what's going to happen. Because I lived through that. And you lived through that. Perhaps there are those who are even older than I am who remember the beginning for the United States in World War II, and you lived through that. Perhaps there are those who are older than me who know where you are when President Kennedy was shot. All of those type things are markers in our lives, unfortunately. I remember everything about that particular day. What I remember most about that particular time was there was a country and western singer by the name of Alan Jackson who wrote a song entitled, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? About that particular day, he would chronicle the, the lives of men and women who lived in our nation and they were going about their business, whether they be truck drivers or school teachers. We not knowing any of those things that were going to happen, we were confronted that day 
with a very great tragedy. We're going to take his particular song title and use that as our sermon title. Generally, we as people define our lives either by really good things that happen or really bad things that happen. As, as we discuss this idea, you can remember the first vehicle you ever got, can't you? You remember the first car wreck? Mm. We can remember what happened on December the 7th. We can remember what happened on September the 11th. We can remember through history the shot heard around the world. And, and everybody in every nation around the world designates time in those particular fashions. Did you know even the Bible does that? Look, if you will, at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. You see Adam and Eve living inside that Garden of Eden, and they're living within a world that God has created that God would look at and say, this is very good. The world that God created for man before Genesis chapter 3 was perfection. It was exactly how he wanted it, exactly how we should live, exactly the relationship we should have. And then in chapter 3, you and I see her by that tree and that very famous question, did God say you couldn't eat of every tree of the garden? And she said, no, we can eat of every tree of the garden with the exception of this one tree. God said, don't eat it. Don't touch it. Lest you die. And here it comes. Satan says, you're not going to die. See, what God recognizes in the point at which you eat that fruit, you will become like him now, let's not take a poll because we might be embarrassed, but how many of you would like to have the ultimate authority that God has? That would be great, wouldn't it? The, that's what Satan's offering her. He said, you can be just like God. You will know right from wrong. He's holding this back from you for some reason. And then it is the fact that she picked that fruit, and as her teeth pierced through the skin of that fruit, her and his world stopped turning. Everything they knew, everything they had been used to, everything that God had provided for them, changed. They no longer could live in that garden. They no longer were, were sinless children of God. They no longer had that relationship. Their world stopped turning. If you and I are truthful with ourselves, and as we look at chapter 3 of Genesis, the lesson is don't eat it. And you think, well, that's kind of a silly lesson for us. We don't have any restrictions on diet. We have a lot of other restrictions. Don't eat the fruit Satan's trying to peddle. Don't eat it. It doesn't matter whether it's fruit in that case or whatever temptation it is in mine. Don't eat it. 
You want to learn the lesson from Genesis chapter 3 and you want your world to continue to turn and not like Adam and Eve stop. Don't eat it. Turn over a few chapters to Genesis chapter 6. You'll see here the elite eight. Always reminds me of uh, March Madness. Matter of fact, if you like March Madness, the next one's going to be four friends. That's pretty close. <clears throat> but this elite eight here are the only eight to survive a global devastation of humanity. A lot of times we look at the, the uh, ark and, and the account of Noah and his family and uh, we, we see it through the rose-colored glasses of what we would put sometimes in our uh, baby's rooms. You know, and they have the, the ark there, and you see all the animals kind of hanging off the ark, and everybody's having a great big time. I need you to understand this. Every person on this earth, with the exception of eight people, died. Let's see if we can flesh that out a little bit. Noah's working on an ark, he and his sons, and perhaps others. And then they go and sit inside this ark after it's completed for a week. And nothing happens. And I hope there were not people like me living near Noah because I think at some point in time, if I were on the outside, which I hope I would not be, I, I, I know me. And here's what I might do. Hey, Noah. It's not raining yet. You've been in there five days. And yet, we all know that the ground is watered from, from the ground up. The mass of humanity's world stopped turning when that first drop of water hit somebody square in the head and they said, what is that? Now, if you want to really put some kind of wheels on this vehicle, imagine throughout the first few days of the rain where people were trying to get rid or, or go to higher ground and, and stay away from that flooding and, and they realized that they can't and they began to swim and then they began to scratch on the side of that ark trying to get in. Or you see that ark as it's navigating its way for 150 days as it's bumping into carcasses of humanity. That's the day that the world stopped turning. At least for everybody but eight. You know what the lesson is in Noah's ark? Salvation is found and only found in the way God provides it. Not the way I think God provides it. Not even the way I, I hope God provides it. It was found in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 in a vessel that was three stories tall. That was pitched within and without with pitch that had one window and one door. And not any other vehicle. Salvation was found in the way God provided it. Notice this one. Book of Job. Now you can look 
uh, from about chapter 3 through about chapter 36, uh, but we will not have the time uh, to do it justice to really look at that. But I'd like for you to notice these four friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and then the young man that comes up. They start out and they begin to sit with Job for seven days and nobody says a thing. And then Job begins in chapter 3 to, to discuss the fact that if he had known that his life was going to be this way, he wished that God would have not even allowed him to be born. And then he has friends. Oh my goodness. And his friends have some misconceptions about why he's going through the problems that he's going through. One of those misconceptions is God is punishing you because you have done something wrong and since we don't know it, you've obviously done that wrong in secret. That was an ancient Jewish mindset that God blesses those who are faithful and that God pronounces curses on those who are uh, not following after him. Interestingly enough, God gives four adjectives several times, even when he mentions Job, that would prove to us that Job is an outstanding child of God. Job's world stopped turning when those servants would come up and say, your camels have all burned up. Your oxen have all been stolen. And then the final, your children have died. What does he do? He has boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He can't sleep. He is can never find a comfortable position. He's always hounded by nightmares. What is, what is he supposed to do? He has these four friends who don't believe him, who continually uh, gripe at him and try to get him to, to go back to pleasing God, but he's already there. The lesson comes in chapter 42. with these four friends and with Job. As God says to these four friends, you need to go and get Job to pray for you. You need to get Job to petition my throne for you because he's the only one out of you five who've been acting right. If you want to know the lesson, the lesson is this. Even though Job's world seemingly was crashing in on him and his world stopped turning, God was still in control. Notice this. Daniel chapter 1. You see a downtrodden Daniel. Daniel, in chapter 1, you find him being taken away into Babylonian captivity. Daniel is a, is a part of the nobility of, of Israel. And we find that out because he's taken away in the first carryings away into Babylonian captivity. I can imagine him living in a, in a nice house, perhaps even the palace. And everything that he wants would be provided for him and his life would be a life of somewhat ease and, and comfort. 
He had the opportunity to study and understand uh, the very Word of God. He had the opportunity to be educated. And then, with the shot of an arrow, his world stopped turning. After that first arrow, there was a barrage. And then there was a, a horde of uh, Babylonians who came in and took over that palace and took them away. What's going to happen to him? The status quo of what should happen to him is, is, is he should die. Because he is part of the nobility of Israel, we're going to get rid of that particular government. Daniel should die. Everything he knew, everything he understood about life, everything he understood about menus and hygiene and, and all of those things that God had provided for them had stopped. And so it is the fact in Daniel chapter 1, correct, that, that Daniel just decided to go off and be as heathen as everybody else. Is that right or wrong? Oh no. Not Daniel. He decided to stick with the God that had gotten him this far in his life. And the lesson he learned in Daniel chapter 1 is it doesn't matter if Daniel is in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if Daniel is in Babylon. It doesn't matter if Daniel's in hot springs. God is everywhere all the time. Notice this. One of the major prophets in the Old Testament was a man by the name of Jeremiah, and he wrote the books of Jeremiah and Lamentation. God uses Jeremiah over and over and over again to warn the nation of Israel that they are going into captivity and that they need to completely change their ways, that they need to turn completely around to a 180 and go back to God, which they have systematically just walked away from. Jeremiah has an interesting moniker given to him by us. His nickname is the Weeping Prophet. You want to know why his nickname is the, the Weeping Prophet? And you say, I think I have this one, preacher, because he cries. Yes, but let me uh, introduce you to Paul Harvey. Do you remember who Paul Harvey was? Let me give you the rest of the story. Not only was, was Jeremiah one who cried over the nation of Israel, he cried over the nation of Israel because he was standing in the center of Israel when it was taken over. And he would see his brothers and sisters die by the sword. And he would weep for that nation because for years he taught, if you'll just come back, God will forgive all if you'll just come back. And due to hard-headedness, and due to the mindset of, I know everything, you can't tell me anything, they continue to walk straight down that path that headed toward destruction. As I read Jeremiah and Lamentation, here's the lesson I find. Don't follow idols. 
And said, Preacher, I don't even, we don't have idols of any kind. Not just idols, not just little, little statues. Don't follow idols of any kind. Matter of fact, Colossians chapter one, or 3, verses 1 through 3 will tell us anything that we put above Jesus the Christ, anything that we put above God is idolatry. I like football. I don't know if I told y'all this last week, but I was proud uh, that my team won. You are too. I like basketball. I get to watch that when I'm by myself because I live with three lovely ladies who don't like basketball. I like baseball. Pretty much if it has a ball, I like it. You know, those things are fantastic pastimes, but they are lousy gods. Anything that I put in place of God, I have substituted the might and the majesty and the power for the throne of God for just anything else. And Jeremiah in his grave weeps for me. Notice this. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You are very familiar with chapter 13 and verse number 3 and verse number 5 where Jesus would say, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You know what's going on here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 5? There's a discussion going on with Jesus about a tower that fell down on some folks. As they were building it, this tower toppled over, fell over and smushed them. Squished, smushed, killed them. And the question was, what kind of sin were they participating in for God to knock that tower over on top of them and kill them? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. Sometimes accidents happen but if you go into eternity not ready as these men did you're going to perish too I tell you nay it wasn't their fault it wasn't anybody's fault but except you repent if you don't change you're going to perish too look at these that are better am I better than those who, who I didn't get smushed by a tower oh no here's the lesson In the lives that we live, accidents happen. You need to be prepared. And, and you look at that probably and you say, well, if I'm prepared, then it's not an accident. I'm not talking about here on earth. And I'm not talking about being prepared physically. If an accident happens today and takes my life, am I prepared spiritually to meet my father? Will that be a happy meeting? Or will that be the worst introduction I've ever had? You know, there are only two statements he's going to make. Enter into rest. And depart from me. I don't even know who you are. Accidents in our life happen. Be prepared. Notice this last one in John chapter 18 through John chapter 20. 
Jesus the Christ, as he's born and as he is raised up, we, we really don't know that much about his life. But in John chapter 18, 19, and 20, we see the last, really the last week of his life and, and most uh, certainly the last three or four days of his life as a, as a human here, or 100% human and 100% God. We see a man who has lived for, for 33 years, who is underneath the law of God and is sinlessly perfect. The only one in human history to do that. The only one in human history that could do that. And we're confronted with him as he is arrested, as he's tried in what we would call a very loose kangaroo court. We see him as he is nailed to that cross. We see him make those seven sayings from that cross. We see him in that last saying as he says, It is finished. And he gave up the ghost and died. And for us... As we look at that, that should have been the point at which the world stopped turning and really for Satan as he is wringing his hand in some sort of Machiavellian way, it may have been in his mind the point at which the world did stop turning and the point at which he won. Satan has a problem. Satan has a lot of problems, but here in, in this particular set of Scripture, Satan has a, a big problem. And Satan's problem here is Sunday. <laughs> because he doesn't stay in that tomb. Because he, does, he is not dead. He is raised to walk through the resurrection of God himself. And as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, if he doesn't come out of that grave, we don't have any hope. But yet, he does, and we do, and the lesson of John 18 through 20 is this. There was a sacrifice made for us. There was a sacrifice made for me, there was a sacrifice made for you, and there was only one sacrifice made for us. There will not be another sacrifice made. That sacrifice that was made for us on that hill that blood flowed all the way back to Adam and Eve and flows all the way forward even today. And you have an opportunity today if you have never accessed the blood of Jesus the Christ by, by being obedient unto God, you have an opportunity today to understand that sacrifice was made for you and accept that sacrifice is made for you and be baptized into the church that Jesus Christ gave his blood for. You have an opportunity and have had the opportunity to hear what God's Word says. You've had the opportunity to uh, chew on that and, and to digest that a little bit. Now, do you believe it? John 8 and verse 24. If you believe it enough, are you willing to do whatever it says? If you are, then you have what's known as biblical faith. Would you be willing to repent of your sin? We already looked at Luke 13, 3 and 5, I tell you nay, but except you repent, shall all likewise perish. Would you be willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the one and only, 
Messiah. From the, the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 throughout the book, we look at this Messiah who is coming, this one and only to save mankind. That's Him. If you're willing to proclaim Him as the Messiah, would you be willing to be baptized for the remission of your sins? Would you be willing to have those past sins of your life washed away? Would you be willing to stand before God being drenched in the blood of Jesus the Christ and Him say, My child. If you've done those things and yet as you look at your life up against the standard of God's Word and you see where areas are that missing that are missing, would you be willing to come home? Would you be willing to come back to God who misses you? Would you be willing to come back to the family that loves you? Where will you be when the world literally stops turning? If we can pray for you, if we can help you obey the gospel, please come now while we stand and sing.